Welcome to episode nine of the Polis Podcast, where we talk about cities and everything that relates to them. I'm John. And I'm Ben. And today we're going to get into mega projects, some of the issues with them, some of the good examples and less good examples. Right. And let's be real, there's not too many good examples, mostly bad examples. There's a lot of bad stuff. <laughs> in fact, when I was trying to do research on this, I was looking up best mega projects in history and honestly couldn't find any like list of them. <laughs> it was just basically all bad mega projects, which is pretty sad, but hopefully we can talk about ways to potentially move forward from that, at least start the conversation yeah. or have a conversation about it. And when we get into kind of how these things tend to work, I think it will make sense why there are so few successes. <laughs> right. Let's just start out by clarifying what do we mean by mega projects. So do you have a particular definition that you think about? Yeah. You know, again, when I was doing this research, if you just type in mega projects, you'll get a list of them. And mm. that list includes buildings and airplanes and dams. And it basically is just a huge array of what someone would consider a mega project. Yeah. And I think the first sort of uh, top line definition of what is a mega project is it requires most likely billions of dollars. Sure. <laughs> I think sure. once you put that once you put that B in there, it just becomes giant and it becomes a sort of massive scale in terms of just money put into it, money spent towards the project. That's the sort of the floor that I'll give yeah. it. But to me, when I think of mega projects, and especially in the context of this podcast, I want to focus on, and I wanted us to focus on um, projects that deal with infrastructure that are most likely mostly publicly funded sure and the infrastructure itself goes to serve a specific most likely urban purpose not always so I something mean, it, like it can be varied somewhat right right but sorry i'm not saying that all mega projects only have to serve that urban purpose what i mean is that they most likely serve a purpose to move great amounts of people or house great amounts of people or improve the lives of the people living in a place in a city or in in a town, places where, where lots of people gather yeah. rather than like a bridge over a gorge to go from point A to point B out in the countryside. They can serve like regions. They generally are at smaller scale when they're far away from populated areas. Yeah, and they I think they're generally less controversial in the sense that they displace fewer people. I guess a different kind of controversy. Like I remember that Alaska bridge to right. nowhere and the bridge to the Isle of Skye in Scotland where... Mm. People okay. were very okay. upset about the amount of government money going into a place where like 10 people live. But yeah, it's less controversial in some ways. It's, it's not displacing people. As many. There's less concern perhaps about environmental impact. Hopefully. I guess it's true. But I think this is why there's conversation. Yes. Why it's conversation. I mean, to me, it just starts with the amount of money and then like sort of what is the initial or what is the actual sort of goal for it? To me, I, I think of mainly like metro lines, bridges, highways, mm. and then maybe some like public housing infrastructure mega projects. Sure, sure. That's like what immediately pops into mind for me. Yeah. What about you? What did you go into this initially thinking mega projects were? I think about it in kind of two contexts. You're right in that they are extraordinary in some way, whether it's expense or size. And either they are some enormous project that cannot normally feasibly be done. So that's thinking of like the channel between the UK and France you know, that enormous tunnel that they dug to send trains under the ocean, essentially. Or there's something that brings together a lot of complex parts, trying to make an integrated system all built kind of together in the same way at the same time by the same people. And so you either have something that is very large scale and highly complicated with a lot of smaller parts, or you have a single thing that is enormous. So this would be like, you know, Three Gorges Dam or something like mm. that, where the scale is almost mind boggling. And I think that pretty well 
encapsulates most of what we would be talking about. So on one hand, when you're thinking about extremely complicated things, you might think about the interstate in the United States, where you have each highway by itself is probably not a mega project. But when you take it as, as a whole, it is a largely centrally directed, largely centrally funded, massive infrastructure project that is all supposed to be kind of standardized. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And to that point, they're investments that serve a function rather than like a massive sort of outdoor art installation. So we were talking a little bit earlier and the question of like the Eiffel Tower came up and I I think I'm firmly in the camp of I wouldn't consider that a mega project. I'd consider that more of like a giant outdoor project, like art, art exhibit. Mm. And it, you know, it kind of was in the beginning where it was, you know, built for the world's fair. And now it serves a purpose kind of in that it brings in tourists from around the world. Yeah. It's an emblem. Sure. Right, right. It's an emblem for France. Some people would even say an emblem for Europe. But I wouldn't consider that a mega project, despite it costing probably a lot of money and also just being huge and grand and shaping the city around it. But to me, its purpose and its intent was different than like the Three Gorges Dam or the Interstate Highway System or the Paris Metro, to use another example. I'm not sure I'm with you on that. Okay. Let's change to a different type okay. then. How do you feel about like Olympic stadiums or World Cup stadiums and things like that? Does that serve enough of a purpose? Because it's not a kind of quote-unquote practical purpose, right? Like it's not a day-to-day run-of-the-mill mm-hmm. kind of thing, like a road mm-hmm. you just drive on mm-hmm. all the time. It is really a set piece for this particular event. Right. I don't consider them mega projects unless okay. they come along with permanent changes to the urban fabric that benefits the city afterwards. What if it's detrimental to the Hopefully city? Yeah, like the city afterwards. If it's detrimental to the city, then I guess it would be considered a mega project because its intent was to change the city's function and form in a way that creates a dramatic change. And I guess whether it's beneficial or not, it would be considered more of a mega project depending on its intent. So like, I think Brazil's gotten a lot of flack for the last Olympics, Mm. where their stadiums are now... And the World Cup. Right, right. And the World Cup. Kind of piled on there. Yeah. I think they were billed as being transformative for the city, but they essentially aren't at this point. Yeah. But I guess I, I don't remember seeing as much in the news about it being specifically for the city. It was more for the Olympics, more for the World Cup than it was for the city. Whereas the winning bids for Los Angeles and Paris for the next Olympics... Mm. I've watched their little like trailers or whatever, their bid trailers that they've done and all the crazy PR. They continuously talk about how we're going to use existing infrastructure, build that existing infrastructure out, and then we're going to build out new infrastructure that will serve this Olympic purpose, and then it will be transformed later after the Olympics are over into affordable housing or like a new metro stop or a new park or whatever. Well, and you see with the Olympics often, and this kind of, I think, started with Barcelona, that people try to utilize it as a mechanism or an opportunity to revitalize the city by building metros Mm -hmm. and by building additional Mm -hmm. other infrastructure that helps facilitate the Olympics, but also hopefully creates longer term benefits. So you saw this with Greece, where they built a new airport, and they built a new metro system in Athens and all of that, to the extent that that is done effectively, like it does seem like you're putting additional strain on yourself to add those sorts of things. Even in Brazil, they built a new metro in or part of a metro line in Rio. Oh, okay. That's the kind of investment that's potentially beneficial. But to try to do that at the same time that you're building a whole bunch of other things. And this is, I think, when we get to some of the downsides of mega projects, you know, trying to do a thousand things at once that are all supposed to be interrelated and connecting. It makes sense to a certain extent that you want to get everybody on the same page. You want to be going the same direction with everything. But it's really hard to juggle everything and make sure that everything comes through the way you want it to come mm-hmm. through when you're dealing with extremely mm-hmm. complex situations. Right. Hmm. 
Yeah, I think I think that's I think that's where I'd have to come down on on Olympic stadiums. Mm. Just if they serve a purpose, I mean, if they try to serve a purpose beyond the Olympics, then yeah, they'd be mega projects, okay. and hopefully, they're it's going to be beneficial to the city. I guess usually it's not, but the promise is always there, and they're real catalysts for change, which is great. Basically, they're sort of external forces coming into a city and saying you you need to do this, rather than internal forces sure saying yeah. you need to do this, which sometimes can be what a city needs. Or I guess like with LA, they're aggressively building out their metro system, but the Olympics makes it even more urgent, considering yeah. how much LA knows their traffic is bad and hates their traffic and sure. wants other alternatives. I have a friend that is working down there. He works in construction and he was telling me that there's a hospital in Long Beach. I think it's in Long Beach. That's this really big hospital and they're trying to like redo the parts of the hospital. Okay. And the Olympics is forcing the hospital to actually build out faster because if now that the Olympics is going there, it's going to be placed in LA. If there's sort of a major event, an attack you know, whatever, right. an earthquake that the hospital needs to take in lots of people, that hospital is going to be like trauma center one. That's going to be ground zero for taking in people. Yeah, it's probably Long Beach Memorial. And it makes sense because it's right next to two freeways that intersect there. Sure, great. And so that's what I'm trying to say is like... It's spurring. Sometimes it can be beneficial for a city to like build out infrastructure that they should have anyway. Yeah. Because that hospital was going to be built whether or not the Olympics were coming. Right. It just now gives it even more urgency. Well, and a lot of people point to Barcelona as a major success story as like they revitalized the whole city but and changed their whole like seafront area for the Olympics. And it coincided with their ascendancy as a major business hub in Spain and a major thriving metropolis within Europe. And so a lot of people have tried to duplicate that sort of thing and, and, and do it done things like you're describing with Los Angeles. And of course, sometimes that has not gone as well. Like I mentioned with Athens, right? they went something like 10 billion over budget and had a huge amount of debt. And it's one of the things that mm. kind of led to the euro crisis or at least contributed to it. It's a huge portion of Greece's debt. And that's one of the downsides mm. of these big boom or bust success or massive failure kind of projects. <laughs> I think talking about Olympic stadiums is a great segue into what are some of the examples of mega projects that you noticed were either good or bad or right in the middle. What are some of examples that you were able to find, John? When I started doing research for this, I fell down a few rabbit holes before I got to the eventual decisions that I came to. The first thing was there are a lot of purpose-built cities out in the world that have had remarkably different track records in terms of the amount of investment they received, how long they took to build, how long they took to thrive, whether or not they really took off or just kind of languished. There are some capitals in like the United States, Washington, D.C. A lot of people don't think about it because it's a relatively old city for an American mm -hmm. city, but it didn't exist <laughs> before the Congress decided we're going to have a capital and we're going to put it there. And you look at Brazil, they m created a new capital in the 1950s in Brasilia, Australia built a new capital, Canberra, at the beginning of the 1900s, the beginning of the 20th century. And all of those are interesting examples. And there are a number of other purpose-built cities that are in process right now or proposed. Like you, there's one in Malaysia, there's like close to Singapore, there's one in China close to Beijing. And those are all interesting examples. I ended up not really categorizing those as mega projects because while they are enormous projects and enormous infrastructure projects, they're not centralized and planned in the same way that I would think about, you know? So while I mention them, I'm kind of going to go immediately away from them. On the good side, there's something that I think a lot of people have heard about, and it's the Dutch dikes and the Dutch barriers against the ocean coming in and destroying the country that they have all up along the coast. It was initially called the Dutch Delta Plan, and it started in the 50s after there was a massive flood that killed a bunch of people. And they've been building dikes and restraining the ocean for centuries in the Netherlands, but this was the largest scale kind of enormous project that they decided to 
start. And initially they planned to spread it over 25 years. They ended up spreading it over even longer. And this is one of the projects that I saw as a real big success. It was a very interesting kind of project because the Netherlands is one of the most unique countries in the world in terms of how they deal with things like that. There aren't many countries trying to reclaim land from the ocean. And those countries that do try to reclaim some land from the ocean, like Singapore, generally just pile up a bunch of sand until it's not in the water anymore. They don't build a wall and drain the ocean. And so it was certainly an interesting project as well as a relatively successful one. So sorry, so just a little bit of context. Mm. So they, they actually did like try to try to drain the ocean. Yeah. Or at least make it recede. Essentially, the way the Netherlands coastline used to be was there were a lot of big inlets. The whole country is very low elevation. And there were a number of inlets where the ocean came relatively far inland. And what they did essentially mm. was built big dikes to cut off those inlets. Then they pumped all of the water from those inlets out. And they drained them completely. Got and it. so they expanded their landmass, I think, by something like 40%. And they shortened wow. their coastline substantially as well. And now there's highways and tunnels all the way along the coastline, along these giant dikes and everything. Mm -hmm. They went through a long process of kind of desalination in terms of the land and making the land more arable and all of that. There's a lot that goes into it. But yeah, they've, they've actually like pumped the ocean out of their country. And, and it benefited the Netherlands by giving them more land and sort of a safety barrier against floods. That was kind of the, the point. Okay. Yeah, well, one of the big things was that it made it much easier and much more efficient to defend against floods. Because with such a long coastline, it was very difficult for them or very costly for them to try to prevent floods. They had to build a lot of dikes and a lot of barriers, a lot of levees everywhere. And with this new shorter unified kind of wall, it was easier for them to defend against it and with this much shorter coastline. So yeah, it protected Got them it. from floods and it gave them a lot more land. I think that was those, those are the primary benefits. For sure. Okay. But you said that it took sort of twice as long. Yeah. Than they had like promised it would have taken. And was it was it over budget? Yeah, it was something like five times over budget. Yeah, it was <laughs> it was pretty massive. And the initial estimate was for about twenty percent of their GDP at the time. So it was massively over budget. And it was already a huge budget, which is one of the reasons why they initially yeah. tried to spread it over 25 years. So while right. I'm saying this is something that is relatively successful, even this took much longer and was dramatically more expensive than anyone anticipated. Mm -hmm. And it, it can still rank as a success because the gains from it are so enormous. Protecting the entire country from any sort of flooding for the next hundreds of years is hugely beneficial because as we've seen recently with Houston and with Puerto Rico, and even going back to Katrina and New Orleans, floods are devastating and much, much more expensive than the construction of even this sort of thing to defend against them. Right. Okay. Did you have any examples of, uh, I don't know, maybe a middle of the road infrastructure project or a really, really terrible one? Yeah. So I think middle of the road, there's what is called the 10T or the core network corridors in Europe right now, which is these unifying train networks that they're building to connect north, south, and east and west within Europe. So since they formed the EU a few decades ago, they've been constantly trying to spread out infrastructure, integrate people more so that the countries trade more and so that they're more politically and economically integrated. And these are 10 different corridors that they're in the process of building, either going on a north-south axis or on an east-west axis uh, throughout Europe. These, I would say, are middling because they are enormously expensive. And it's questionable whether or not their practical benefits will outweigh their expenses. Like right now, I think they're close to finishing uh, a tunnel essentially under the Alps connecting Austria and Italy. 
So instead of having to send trains over on these snaking, slow journeys, like trains don't do well on hills. They generally need very flat areas to go on because basically they function on friction. And if it's too steep, they start rolling backwards. <laughs> so that's, that's not great. Yeah, no. So they've blown this enormously long tunnel under the Alps. And it's supposed to greatly reduce the time and greatly reduce the expense of shipping things and traveling through that corridor from Denmark, essentially, all the way down to Italy. There's the hope that this will greatly increase commerce, but the cost is enormous, and we're not sure, or I'm not sure, whether or not it will come through. Now, this is one of the more complicated things about these large-scale projects, especially in an international setting. This is supposed to, you know, just like the EU was, to not allow for warfare within Europe. So there's a whole political side to this where they're like, we'll have peace and prosperity between countries and we'll integrate the countries more so that people will know each other better and be more friendly and all of that. So there's all of this other side benefit beyond the economic stuff and beyond the kind of practical benefits. And this is one of the things that I think you have to weigh with a lot of this stuff. A lot of these sorts of projects are helping some groups, hurting some groups, Maybe they're very expensive, but they have some long-term benefits. And the great thing about tunnels is that they're pretty much there forever. They're not going away, especially in a place where there's no earthquakes. And so while this might not pay back in the next 20 years, over the next century, it's pretty likely to pay its way. The other middling example that I have is the channel, which is the giant tunnel between England and France, connecting London and Paris. This was a train tunnel that took a long time to dig. It was extremely expensive. It went over budget it went over time it has never paid back what it was supposed to it never like paid its mm -hmm. bonds now they're trying to make strides for that by essentially allowing more than one train operator to operate trains along the track under the channel so the idea is that you'd have more competition you might have more trains and generate more revenue it's part of a general european policy to separate the use of tracks from the running of trains but essentially it's always been extremely expensive. It's questionable whether or not it's useful, especially when you're looking at things like Ryanair flights, which are, you know, 10 euros to get from London to Paris. It's hard to justify how expensive the train tickets are and the train tickets aren't even paying for the tunnel. Right. It's questionable whether or not it's valuable. But one of the things that I will say for both of those projects that I just described and for the Dutch Delta plan, it's that these things at least were executed. They were completed or are in the process of being completed and did their job properly. Now, if you look at a lot of other projects in a lot of other places, sometimes they have catastrophic impacts and sometimes they don't do their job properly. And so you'll sometimes see governments sink in billions of dollars and get harm rather than get benefits. Like we talked about mm -hmm. in one of the earlier episodes when we were talking about the book Walkable City, how in San Francisco, there was an elevated highway that collapsed after an earthquake and that that improved the city. And so if you think about the what, $50 million, $100 million spent on that elevated highway, right. removing it benefited the city. It feels so bad to waste that amount of money and have it actually hurt rather than help. Right, right. Agreed. So like evaluating these projects, mm -hmm. even the, the worst sort of mega projects, like worst infrastructure mega projects, and there, there are a number of them, are there essentially ones that the costs outweigh the benefits, right? That's right. like kind of how we have to look at them. And, you know, I looked up like what's sort of the most expensive mega project in U.S. history, because that's probably going to be the one that we get to harp on the most. It <laughs> has the most critics, sure. Right. And the one that I found is also probably the most controversial because of its expense, but also because it brought a lot of benefits. It's the Big Dig in Boston. Mm. And that was basically this sort of big push to... This big Dig. Yeah, it was a big dig. It was a push to put, uh, I think, the I-93 
the Interstate 93 highway underground, <laughs> put it in a tunnel because it used to run on an elevated highway through basically downtown Boston. And it like, I guess, cut the city in half and created these sort of dead zones. Because, right. you know, if you walk up or drive up to a freeway in a city, it really has sort of a, a nullifying effect on the areas around it. You know, nobody wants to be near a freeway. Nobody wants you never to, really want to cross uh, under to build either, near a freeway. Not on your car. You don't want to cross yeah. under it. They're they're huge. They're loud. They're noisy. Their traffic usually is bad around them. They act as sort of like the edge of a city. They become an edge of a city. Sure, yeah. You know, they create edges where there shouldn't be edges. They emanate plague. Right, and that's what the big dig was trying to solve: was putting the city below the city, putting the freeway below ground, as well as expanding other roads, like one out to Boston's Logan Airport. I Actually, I think created a road out there, and as well as like brought in a new metro line, um, more new stops, and then put a bunch of new park in. So like where the the elevated freeway was, they've put a, sort of a green belt through downtown Boston. Right. This ended up taking a long time. Yeah, a long time. <laughs> it was just plagued by cost overruns. It went from two point six billion dollars as like the estimate to fifteen billion dollars of like specific cost, you know, which is which is just a crazy amount of overrun and money. And it was eight years behind schedule when it was finally completed and there were all these issues like design blueprints didn't line up right. there was an issue with like the mixing of the concrete was wrong and they had to like i guess redo it and even someone died at the very sort of at the very end because after it was built you know someone was driving through it and one of the new tunnels collapsed on them and they died so like in the end it also directly caused the death of a human which is up there is pretty bad uh, in terms of like failures of a mega project, I mean, considering the number of car accidents on roads every day, true. But we normally measure like failures of mega projects in cost overruns and the amount of time they're behind schedule, rather than like deaths of human beings. So true. for that to also happen was just sort of a cherry. But on top. Ben, just think about all the lives saved by having all the construction and everybody being stuck in traffic all the time. No one was going fast enough to True. get into car accidents. And so everyone, you know, stuck in that bumper to bumper for years as this construction project was oh going, saved a lot of lives. Yeah. I would love to see a mayor run on the platform of, I will create traffic, therefore it will slow down traffic, <laughs> therefore fewer people will die. I can't wait. Can I Can I just, a quick aside about this? Yeah. I, I always like yeah. telling this because I find it fascinating and it has nothing to do with what we're talking about. But there have periodically been subway strikes in London. And it obviously jams everything and there are a lot fewer trains run and people find new routes uh, to work and everything. And everyone always woes and moans about the economic cost of it. But there was this one analysis of it uh, that essentially looked at it and said that people on average after the strike had shorter commutes to work because during the strikes, some people found slightly better routes to get to work. And so on average, people saved something like I don't know, 90 seconds getting to work every day, which in aggregate for the city ended up making the strikes not cost anything because people found better ways to get to work and ended up spending less time commuting after the fact. I'm not sure if that all made sense as I described it, but those sorts of things I it think does. are great. It does, except that isn't that an argument to like not have the subway? No, no, no. It's an argument to say that sometimes you just need to shake things up to get people oh. to think out of their mold because you know people got into their habit of going a certain route to work every day they never questioned it when they were forced to change it then they actually had to think about it and they found better routes oh okay so it's so it's the people who haven't optimized their yeah, routes yeah, yeah. i guess i would have That's assumed that someone would have figured out the best way to get there and then like continuously thought about it interesting so that's, thinking that's really people. interesting a lot of people once you get into a commute you just go the same way that you've always gone right i guess it's true 
I guess that's true. See, when I think of massive American infrastructure projects, though, I think of the high-speed train in California. Right. That's definitely a boondoggle. I mean, it hasn't even been completed and it's already just, I don't know, I think that was 2008 when we voted on it. So that's now 10 years and they have only started building track and God, that's just And it's already gone over the entire budget allocated for it, I believe. Right, right. And they still haven't figured out how to put it through the Central Valley, how to put it how to get it into, into downtown LA. LA and then into downtown yeah. San Francisco. Because, you know, in San Francisco, they've built this new, it's called like the Transbay Terminal, this really massive, it's like five or six blocks long. It is a cool looking building. It's a cool building. Yeah, it's a really cool building. But it, it so it's this big, big building that's lifted up maybe to like the fourth or fifth story. And it is a transit hub. Yeah. You as the passenger can get out of your Transbay bus and then walk downstairs and get on a San Francisco bus. And they want to connect the regional train BART to this Transbay terminal, but they eventually want to connect high-speed rail to it. And a large portion of the construction costs is for them to build, honest to God, a hole in the ground that they're not doing anything with. (laughs) That hopefully within 10 years, they can build high-speed rail to it. I guess what I'm trying to say is that in terms of like boondoggles, like it is crazy. Like they're building infrastructure for it, but there's absolutely no guarantee that the train is even going to get there. But the city and these infrastructure projects are incurring these costs already. Yeah, this is one of the interesting things about enormous infrastructure projects like these. If a change in regime happens, if the government changes its focus, these things take a very long time and they're extraordinarily expensive. And so it's really difficult to change course midway. For instance, with the California high-speed rail, if we end up canceling it and it just never happens, you've spent what, $50 billion, right. something like that, and gotten nothing. Right. That is really the biggest danger of these kinds of enormous projects. So we've named a bunch of projects, and we've talked about like some that we think are pretty good, yeah. that, and like middle-of-the-road ones, and some that have cost a huge amount, that were way overrun. But how do we actually evaluate them? Because like, there are the numerical numbers, but what are some of the different angles we can look at them? Yes, that's a very good question. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think the biggest indicators, let's look at three, okay? So how close to budget are they? How long do they take? How much longer than they were planned to take do they take? And do they end up serving the function that was intended? Mm. And maybe the fourth big thing would be, what are the externalities that after they're built are obvious, but before they were built, no one foresaw? Because some of these things have, like we talked about with some of the elevated highways, hugely detrimental impacts and are really damaging But no one really anticipates it, or few people anticipate it, so they end up causing significant problems. Those are kind of the four areas that I would look at, because I think pretty much all of the projects we've looked at, and pretty much all of the projects you can find, cost more than they are intended to cost, and take longer. And, you know, that applies not just to mega projects. That applies to almost all construction and almost all one-off projects. If you're doing anything one time, even look at car manufacturers. When they try to make a new car, a new model of car, like let's say when Toyota came out with the Camry, that cost more and took longer than they planned on it taking. And whenever you have large one-off things that are not duplicated, that's what happens. Because it's really hard to predict when you're building a type of building that's never been built before, or you're building a dam in a unique position. It's really hard to predict all of the different things that are going to happen, all of the different mess-ups, all of the different unforeseen groundwater or anything else. Like there's some sort of earthquake or there's some sort of 
extra expense or some subcontractor Mm -hmm. goes out of business. Like you don't know everything that's going to go into it. You don't know all of the issues that are going to arise. And for a project that's supposed to take 10 years or 20 years, it's impossible to make those sorts of predictions. You just have to expect, generally speaking, that they're going to cost more and take longer than you expect. But if they really come through and they serve their function well, and they don't have a lot of other hugely detrimental impacts that no one foresaw and suddenly are causing a whole lot of calamity within the country, then I generally would call that a success. How do you feel about it? See, I agree, except I'm looking at it slightly differently because to me, looking at basically all the mega projects that have happened, infrastructure mega projects, they always cost more than they say they're going to cost. They always take longer than they say they're going to take. And I was reading this report by McKinsey, and they were saying that part of this is due to the fact that it's just, it's either not planned well, or the developers and the people who propose the projects oversell how few dollars it's going to take and how long it's going to take to build. So that's like either like a, like an unknown human error or sort of a purposeful way of misleading someone. So like, right. that's like a portion of it. And I don't want to discount that. I think it should be counted less than the, than the real issue, which is simply that mega projects, just as a mega project inherently takes longer than you think it's going to take yeah. and will cost more than you think it's going to cost. And that's just due to crazy things that you couldn't have thought about before. For example, for the big dig, apparently a portion of the ground that they were working on ended up being way too soft for them to build there. Right. They just weren't able to foresee that issue and that became a cost overrun. And I think that's a common thing with construction. Right. And I guess what I'm getting at is there are just these natural things that happen with mega projects. So you have to just anticipate it, which means that when we're evaluating the impact of a mega project, like I think there's a conversation, do we continue down the road with mega projects, right? Right. Should we continue this if they're going to cost more, you know, because nobody wants to drain city coffers because then that comes out of other things that, you know, the city also needs like other public services or schools. Well, and most of these are not primarily funded by the local government. Well, maybe not the actual construction of the project. Like they might be able to get federal or state or national subsidies, but ultimately it's sort of the maintenance of the project, as well as maybe some of the bonds or whatever, definitely come from local governments and can negatively impact the economy of these cities. Sure. Especially for urban type projects. And regardless, even if it's not the city, someone is losing money. And the point is, they shouldn't be losing money. They're always billed as cost effective, but they're not. And so my point here is that if they're always going to be inefficient, at least numerically, we have to also consider what are the benefits of these projects? Like what are maybe the social benefits, the things that you can't necessarily put a number to? And I would argue that for the big dig, creating a bunch of green space and transforming the city to where now you've like merged two parts of the city and you've created a lot of like social value in, in the being able to walk between different parts. It's a much better living space. Yeah, yeah. Like there are books and books and books out there of the detrimental effects that freeways have on downtown areas of cities. <laughs> so by doing this, that might have been worth it. Like creating a new space and transforming the city, you can't put a dollar value on it. And I don't know exactly where the line is drawn and what billions of dollars are actually not worth it. Like if this had cost hundreds of billions of dollars and it transformed the city, I probably wouldn't have supported it no matter what. And I think that having a conversation about that for each and every project is really important. Especially with projects this large, yeah. Right. And the other thing too is if you transform the city, like with the Big Dig, you've taken a place that was low in value, at least relatively low. Like you started out with with a a level of value that was lower than what it's become because- Everyone loves green space. Everyone loves walkability. Like we've talked constantly about how creating those spaces actually adds value to your city. Then now you have this place where developers 
can start to make more money and therefore you can like maybe potentially tax them more or you can increase the economic vibrancy of an area and the vitality of an area and more businesses want to move in, more people want to live there. So those are all sort of external factors that I wouldn't necessarily say that that offsets the cost of the big dig, if that makes sense. It does. Because it's it's really hard. It's apples and oranges, kind of. Yeah. And, and I think it's much harder just to draw like a specific line and say that because of the big dig, we've increased revenue by this much. Although that usually goes into the cost benefit analysis of mega projects. Yeah. And that's a way that they justify it. And rightfully so. I just think that it's hard because, you know, if you do it in one area of the city, then other areas of the city are also impacted, right? There's a lot of knock on effects. Right. And so like, to me, the way that I look at mega projects is, you know, who does this help? Sure. And how does this affect the city as a whole? Because I think that there sometimes are projects that have a sunk cost that are worth it, like the Dutch one, right? I think that you can't really put a numerical value on someone's life or on sort of losing out to the elements, right? Right. Having your whole country disappear. Exactly. Exactly. Especially with, with climate change accelerating as it is, that was enormous and incredible foresight on the Dutch side. And regardless of it taking 50 years and billions and billions of dollars and a large amount of the portion of their GDP, it's worth it. I think that that is a great example because I think that like saving the country is worth the amount of money that you're going to put into it. And to them, they saw it that way. They saw it as saving the country. And so mega projects, to me, their value really comes in there. And I think there's a debate and a conversation to be had about which projects actually do that and which projects don't. From all the research that I've done and sort of the conclusion that I've come to from doing this research is that most mega projects don't provide that level of benefit. Right. And therefore, we should focus on sort of smaller projects. And I think we'll get into that into into a sec, but I want to hear what you have to say because I just talked your head (laughs) off for like 10 minutes. Well, I think, I mean, I, I largely agree with a lot of what you just said, but I think fundamentally there's a divide between urban and non-urban projects. Okay. And when you're talking about something like the Dutch Delta Plan, or when you were looking at something even like the high-speed rail in California, those are not the sorts of things that you can do with a small project. It's not possible. True. When you look at something like the Big Dig in Boston, there's a real question as to whether or not there are alternatives. Did you need to do all of those things? Like you said, you put in this green belt, you built the roads, you dug this giant tunnel for the freeway. Did you need to do all of those things? In order to do this, or could you have done a number of different smaller projects Mm. over a longer period Mm. of time and seen how each one of them worked and then progressed more slowly in a more varied approach, right? So when I look at this, I think that there's a huge difference between these enormous scale projects that are very much a national thing, or even when I was talking about the European train links, right, across the continent. You cannot do that in a small way. I mean, you can piecemeal, and they have. They've had piecemeal train systems for, you know, a couple centuries across the continent as each country builds up their own train network. And it makes sense to integrate them to a certain extent, but you can't fully integrate them without fully integrating Mm -hmm. them. Within an urban Mm -hmm. setting, there's no reason, for instance, with a subway network, that you need to build all of the subways up front, right? Like Paris has, I think, 14 different metros. They were built over the course of a century. You don't need to have the full system planned and build everything all up front, all in one unified way. And I think that most cities, most of the best, most thriving cities in the world, at least modern cities function on a set plan. A lot of older cities just grew up naturally. And that set plan does not prescribe everything. One of the problems with enormous projects like these in cities is that you are making a decades-long commitment and you're dedicating yourself to shaping the city in a certain way 
And it doesn't allow you the flexibility and it doesn't allow you the ad hoc mobility in changing things based upon given neighborhoods or different interests in different places or different funding capacity in different neighborhoods and things like that. You know what I mean? Like there's more of an alternative to having smaller projects in the cities. Right. You, you don't right, need right. to have I, these enormous projects. You need to have these enormous projects for dams. You need to have these enormous projects for like the International Space Station, right? Like you can't do that mm -hmm. piecemeal with a small mm -hmm. $2 million projects. You know, actually, I'm actually really glad that you brought up the International Space Station because I don't think it actually like brings in any money, but we're spending a bunch of money on it. But what it does bring us is a better understanding of the universe and therefore ourselves. Yeah. And like, I think that's priceless, right? Sure. Um, and that's why everyone supports space, even though it doesn't, I don't know if it necessarily makes money. Definitely doesn't. I, I don't think it does. Although, I mean, if we didn't have satellites, we'd be hurt economically it's true. substantially. That's true. But like, I don't know, a trip to Mars or whatever. Right. I guess right. what I'm getting at is there's more value. When we talk about mega projects. It seems like the consensus that we're both coming to is like mega projects are great and I guess worth the money if they have sort of a larger goal beyond specifically making a profit. And they should really only be used for relatively large projects, usually outside of cities. Yes. Well, and I think what I would caution against is doing large projects that are trying to integrate a thousand different things that are not automatically related. Right. I guess what I'm trying to get at is if we're like parsing down where and how mega projects should be. We are saying, and correct me if I'm wrong, but we are saying that mega projects have a space and have a point, but it's like a very narrow sort of space. And that is to like do, even if they're real complicated and they're large, you know, like you could never have created the the Delta plan without all of these intricate towns and cities and governments working sure, together. Yeah and funders or whatever, as well as sort of the Three Gorges Dam, which may be controversial, but still like it's like a, such a big project that the Chinese government had to like, well, I mean, they're a little bit more centralized. <laughs> more centralized, yeah. So they can, they can get stuff done, but I mean, they still needed to like coordinate all of that, right? Yeah. And so I think like what I'm getting at is I feel like mega projects, they're usually billed as these like big sexy projects because they have all these different fun things that they can mm -hmm. do. And it's very easy to go down this rabbit hole of just oh, look at this cool thing that we can do and let's do it and it'll be easy and fun and cost effective. Yet it usually isn't. Well, and they're flashy. Exactly. Yeah, they're flashy. And it usually doesn't result in that amazing benefit that it's billed as. And that's fine as long as it's a project that serves sort of a greater function than itself, like the Delta Project mm -hmm. in the Netherlands, right? Because that's kind of what you're yeah, getting Yeah, I mean, at. I think really what I, what I would say is that it's fine to go with something like a major project if there is no possible alternative. If there is any possible alternative, don't do it. <laughs> mm. Mm. because and this is a point that i think really needs to be driven home any enormous project like this is a huge gamble like i brought up earlier the examples of barcelona and athens for the olympics mm -hmm. barcelona they made a whole bunch of infrastructure investment they tried to revitalize a lot of the city and it was hugely successful and everybody looks at it and says wow really well done like you guys did great you look at Athens, they tried to do basically the same thing, and it utterly failed and was terrible and cost a huge amount and collapsed, right? It's because really at the end of the day, with most of these sorts of things, with most things in the world, how well you do it is what matters. As great as the idea might be, as great as the plan might be, the execution of the actual project is what matters. And if you mm. happen to not execute it well, or there happen to be a lot of unforeseen circumstances, things can go awry horribly. Especially if you're a smaller country, if you're putting so many of your eggs into one basket, if you're putting so much of your infrastructure investment into one project, then you have the potential for this to go terribly and just suck all of the air out of the room for 20 years. Mm. 
doing smaller things, you can have more failures and deal with it and move forward. If you're spreading your money into a lot of different projects, a lot of different small things that each move the country forward, it's less flashy, it gets less attention, it brings less popularity to politicians, but mm-hmm. it has the potential to be less detrimental. You might even have less of an upside, right? Like you might not have a sea change like Barcelona did where it's completely revitalized, but you're not going to basically cause the euro crisis by having a huge amount of national debt in Greece, right? Mm-hmm. So it's like you're going to a casino and you're saying, well, I'm going to put you know all of my money on black or you're saying I'm going to spread out my money. Well, you know, you, you have better odds of not losing everything if you spread out your money. If you spread out your bets into a lot of things and for yeah. things that are as unpredictable as construction and infrastructure and everything like everybody looks at infrastructure as a great investment because it's consistent and returns money for over the course of 30 years or 50 years but the upfront expense and the upfront practicality of actually doing the project is hugely variable that's one of the issues and i know this is a slightly different right. thing but that's one of the issues when you're looking at like mining companies every mine that you dig is hugely different these are enormous billion dollar projects to dig like a copper mine everyone is different some of them cost dramatically more than they expect and mining companies regularly go out of business because of cost overruns in a new massive project that they did. You know, that's the kind of gamble that you have to do in that industry. But you don't necessarily have to do that when you're talking about infrastructure in cities. You can do smaller piecemeal things a lot of the time. Yeah, from like the research that I've done, it seems like the main reason why, well, not the main reason, but what you're talking about, these highly complicated projects, the complexity of the projects creates the cost overruns and extends the length of them. And I guess like the way I look at it is, I put mega projects into like two buckets. One is a bucket of mega projects that are so big and so necessary that really we kind of just need to spend the money and and hopefully sure. do a really good job. And, re- and even if it like costs too much, it's worth mm-hmm. it. And then there's those that are just not worth it at all. And our GCC's like flashy, sexy things that, that we really shouldn't buy into. And it's hard to disentangle one from the other because they usually marketed pretty well. Sure. But what we should be looking for and what we should actually absolutely be funding are these smaller infrastructure projects yeah. that don't have as many sort of complex parts to them and can be more variable and be more cost effective and also sort of serve they won't serve a bigger function, but by serving their local areas better, they can have a big impact. So like sort of yeah, small totally. scale big impact projects. And I feel like those are also easier to you know, deal with local governments, you have you have fewer people that you have to like sign off on yeah. and fewer levels of bureaucracy and even just fewer people with fewer goals about what the project should be. Well, and it impacts fewer people. Right, which is fine. And sort of to your point earlier, which I thought was really salient, the Paris metro and other metros around the world, especially the older ones, were built over like a century, yeah, right? Yeah. And they only have these amazing systems because they were built sort of locale by locale, or maybe all at once. But like at this point, I, I think it might be might be more interesting to think about building infrastructure projects, especially metros that are connected, you know, one to the next, maybe building it station by station. And instead of like trying to build out an entire line, it's like you go, yeah, this station should go here. We don't necessarily have any plans for a station down there. This next station might be like, I don't know, a little bit farther to the west or a little bit mm. farther to the east. and and It's an interesting idea. And we'll do that sort of cost-benefit analysis after we've built this station. We see sort of the impacts of that. And then we can use the progress and the the benefits from this station as part of like the PR campaign for the next station. I think that's hard. I mean, I, I agree that it's hard. Just because a metro with like two stops is useless. So Right. I mean, no, I, I guess I'm not saying for like the start of a metro. 
Metro. You build like one hmm. line or something. I don't know. This is for more like established metros. I'm thinking of... For expanding them, sure. Yeah, I'm thinking of places like Seattle or Chicago or the Bay Area, even LA, which is building their metro lines right now, yeah. right? Some of them are more cost effective than others, and some of them bring more riders than others. And it's important to understand what and how each stop interacts with its local environment. Because hmm. I feel like most people are distrusting of big projects. And most people don't want to be taxed to have these projects. The common refrain about why they don't want to be taxed to create these projects is that they always have cost overruns and they always take too long and they never feel like they benefit me personally. Yeah. And I don't think these people are wrong, but sometimes- Yeah, you're absolutely right. A lot of people don't see how it benefits them and they think it's really expensive and time consuming. Right. And I'm kind of like, I'm moving away from talking about the infrastructure projects as a mm -hmm. project because I think on this show, we agree that these infrastructure projects- are good and ultimately can be cost effective. You just have to do them right. But like, how do you actually get the public to agree with you and back you? Well, right. you have to show them good examples, right? And the best way to show them good examples is to honestly start smaller and start with like easily understandable and relatively smaller cost and smaller benefit projects. But if you do them well, you gain public trust and you build to bigger and bigger projects. And then ultimately, you stop yourself from building giant, unnecessary projects mm. with like too many moving parts. Yeah, yeah. And if you just put out consistent, good, I think like mid-level projects, probably, you can build a city with really good infrastructure. And then maybe with like a grander vision that itself is a mega project. I like I would argue that the Paris Metro or the New York Metro are mega projects. But like we were saying, they weren't all built at once. So you build these smaller projects, which in this sort of analogy are stations mm. and lines. And then slowly, you eventually have this really big project that ultimately benefits the city. Well, and I think this fits into my general thinking about how city planning should be executed. Uh -huh. With projects like these and with planning generally, you should lay out principles that you want the city to follow and a concept right. that you want the city to be based upon. Right. If a project meshes with that, then you can move forward with it. But you don't have to reshape the city or build out the entirety of the city all at once. You just have to make sure that it works together and that it fits together. Mm -hmm. And I think the urge, like there was in Boston, to change everything, to make all of these things better and make them all fit together, that's something that you should fight against and you should accept that if this fits with the general principles that you want to build the city around, like removing the freeway from the middle of the city, that's great. Do that. Mm -hmm. And then once that's done do other things. Mm -hmm. But yeah, you're definitely right. Like having it all integrated right. is, is potentially dangerous. I did just want to push back on something you said a while ago, because uh, it was just sitting uh -huh. in the back of my head and I thought I should address it. Uh -huh. These things have huge cost overruns and people talk about or we've talked about how they may not be particularly efficient. But it should be pointed out that construction and infrastructure projects generally have cost overruns. They're generally over budget. They generally take longer than you expect. If you look at any skyscraper built in Manhattan, almost all of them mm -hmm. will have taken longer than they expected and cost more than they expected, right? You look at the One World Trade Center that was built to replace the Twin Towers. It cost dramatically more than anybody anticipated and took much, much longer. And so I guess what I'm saying is that it's not necessarily more efficient to have smaller projects. They mm -hmm. also cost more and take longer than what people expect. Okay. But... The big projects could get dumped on a lot because they cost so much more. When you see that this project cost $5 billion or $10 billion more than it was supposed to, it's much easier to jump on it than when you look at a $10 million project that cost $15 million. It's like, yeah, okay, it's $5 million more. It's not the same as $10 billion more, you know? I guess that's true. Sure. And so I think perhaps they get somewhat of a bad name 
in certain areas. They're just more eye-catching. Now, I still think, to my earlier point, in a catastrophe situation, it's much better to have a catastrophe on a $10 million project than on a $50 billion project because, you know, it's not as big of a catastrophe. So there's still reasons to avoid them in many instances. But all infrastructure, all construction costs more than people expect it to cost. And there aren't good solutions to that. Right, right, right. So many problems can be solved by good infrastructure. Mm. And by also, by, we haven't even talked about this, but also by maintaining your infrastructure. Yeah. yeah. And so like they are worthy and notable causes that we should move forward with, but they need to be done in a good way. Mm. And that's what I always keep in the back of my mind, I guess, about, about these. You know, I've advocated for these types of projects and you always get people that they seem like they don't understand why we should have them. And right. to your point about the projects need to fit in with sort of the scale and the goal of the city is so, so crucial because so many projects can be billed as these flashy things that can transform the city, sure, but they just don't do it in the best way. Not only would they have cost overruns, but they also just don't benefit the city in those sort of non-numerical ways that yeah. I was talking about. And that would be probably, in my mind, the absolute worst mega project, sure. right? Because at least from the other things I read about the Big Dig, it has benefited the city in a lot of other ways. And I guess that's also a small little caveat. I am only saying that it's the worst one in the U.S. because of sort of the cost overruns and it just being the most expensive. So it's just the, the easiest target. But there are a lot of benefits to it. And so like figuring out which ones we really want to keep and can, and move forward with is crucial. And I think that the best way to do that is like we're talking about, have it sort of on that smaller yeah. scale. But those smaller scale projects also have to fit in with what the city wants. And then we also have to make sure that we follow its progress and that we're tracking its key goals Mm. and that we're measuring the results in a way that benefits the community. So in some projects, you know, I'll see is like a justification for the project. They'll say stuff like, we're going to lay, I don't know, a hundred miles of new track. Okay, great. But like, will the hundred miles of new track actually benefit the people or is it just a hundred miles of new track? A better justification for it would be like, this is going to improve the existing housing infrastructure and make it slightly more dense without negatively impacting the area around the new station. Or it'll put rail access within one mile of 100,000 new people or something like that. Right, right. But then also justify that even farther. And by doing so, more people will be able to walk to work, which will reduce the amount of greenhouse gases. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, I do. They're harder to quantify a lot of these things. Right. But I don't know. I'm sometimes more convinced by the non-quantifiable arguments for a project than the quantifiable. But it's hard to do cost benefit analysis on non-quantifiable things. You're right. But like, I don't have an answer for and I don't think there is an answer for like, how much does a human life cost? Right. Right. So like saying stuff like increasing the amount of people on public transit will reduce the amount of deaths in cars. I mean, I honestly don't know the answer to this. But like, would saving 100 people from dying in a car be worth a $5 billion infrastructure improvement? You know what I mean? Well, interestingly enough, various countries do use cost estimates for what a human life costs for transportation. Which is insane. I I, may, I don't like know. Recently, France lowered its speed limits on a lot of its roads that had this cost estimate for what the cost of life is. And so they were trying to say it's cost benefit positive because you're going to save something like a few thousand lives a year or something like that. But you're right. Those things, as much <laughs> as people want to pretend like they can quantify them, there is no quantifiable number that you can place on a human life or a lot of these issues. But I will say all of your concerns about the social impact and the neighborhood impact and the impact on people, the kind of more qualitative things, those things are all also benefited by the decentralization that I'm talking about, about having smaller projects that are more locally controlled. Right, 
Right. Because by its nature, whenever you have an enormous project, there are still only a handful of decision makers. And those handful of decision makers are not fully cognizant of all of the interests of everyone that is impacted by this project. And so the more decision makers you have impacting the smaller number of people, the more likely they are to take into account the ramifications for everyone that is affected. And that's something that we should strive for. I mean, if you have one person in Washington, D.C. making all of the decisions for everybody in, you know, Maine and California, they're less likely to understand what's going on. And even if you have somebody in City Hall for a city as large as San Francisco or as large as Singapore making all the decisions, they're less likely to understand everything than the locals on the ground. And so getting a small project for just a few blocks handled will obviously get the locals up in arms and get them to express their interests. And that could be problematic because they could be, you know, obstructionists and all of that. But at least you are going to take their concerns into account. If you're doing something citywide, then you're not going to take in the concerns of a few people on one block. You're going to ignore them for the benefit of the whole city. But if you ignore enough people, then it might not actually be to the benefit of the city. To the extent possible, you don't want to reshape the city in a way that angers a huge number of people. (laughs) Right. Your project probably won't move forward. That being said, and we should have an episode on this, on like local control versus, I guess, non-local control. I don't know. It depends on what you want to call local. But, you know, ultimately, I agree with you, but I also think that projects need to fit into the overall plan of the city. Mm. And we need to be able to convince each individual neighborhood that this is going to benefit you. And this is how, and also this is part of a larger plan. So like you are a part of a larger plan that will benefit the whole city, but it will also benefit you. Ultimately, those are like the best projects, right? They also need to be not just it'll benefit you, but this project is tailored to your needs and your future needs. Well, and these things, especially these enormous projects, they take decades to finish and they need Mm -hmm. to be bringing benefits for decades and generations to come. Mm -hmm. And that's why things Mm -hmm. like the Dutch dikes are so beneficial because they will benefit generation after generation. Some things that you might tear down, like some elevated highways in Boston, you know, if you're going to tear them down in 30 or 40 years, then it's not nearly as beneficial as something that will be here for a century or two. Mm -hmm. Just one last thing about this, because I think it needs to be addressed. How do you feel about with some of these projects, especially in cities, not the large scale Mm -hmm. national projects, but the city projects being privately versus publicly controlled or privately versus publicly managed and implemented? I guess I'm I'm still making up my mind on this. I'm kind of a fan of like a hybrid between the two because I don't think that projects that ultimately benefit the public should be 100% privately owned. Hmm. I'm just a little wary of that after having seen how private entities act and react. I think that it's always better for there to be at least some public oversight and understanding for those types of projects. But I also think that there's some interesting examples around the world like Hong Kong, where their metro is funded in part by the property values and property sales of the buildings that are placed on top of it. I mean, ultimately, the money has to come from somewhere. When you look at London, you know, basically the first metro, it was all dug privately, you know, privately run trains. Sure. But at some point, maybe it's dug privately and publicly operated or the reverse. I mean, I think that like, ultimately, these, these projects should be investments. And if the government does not have enough money to make these investments, but it needs to be done, then they have to come up with some sort of financing scheme. Mm. And so I'm I'm open to be convinced one way or the other. I also think that I want to do a little more reading about it. But that's kind of my take. I, I think Makes that sense. there's a way to work uh, for public-private financing, but you know, maybe it should be all public. Maybe some of it should be all public. Okay. I don't know. Yeah. I also think that ultimately, you know, the best public transit would be 
super cheap, almost free. Hmm. And there's no way that a private company would want to agree to that. That has to come from some sort of like government subsidy. Well, if you had effective road uh, charges, so, you could charge a lot more for public transit and still get a lot of people on it. But if you want it to be super cheap, then that doesn't help. Charging more right. for roads doesn't make it cheaper. Yeah, right. I don't know. I, I think the actual managing of the infrastructure, you might make some sense in terms of private ownership not being necessarily useful. I think for the construction, for the implementation, private construction and private building of these sorts of projects, I think does often make a lot of sense. Because especially when you're looking at things like major projects or things like subways, right? There are subways built all over the world in lots of different cities. And there are organizations that have become adept at building subways. And there's almost no way that your city is better at building subways than a company that digs subways all over the place. And so it's unlikely for any of these sorts of projects that your country or your city is going to be the only city on earth that is going to be doing these sorts of projects. And it's also equally unlikely that you're going to be doing them regularly enough to have publicly paid staff who are good enough to do them well. And so it makes a lot of sense to outsource a lot of the implementation. I'm not sure that you necessarily need to do it all the time for everything. And I completely agree with you that in large part, these things will be publicly funded and will, after construction, be publicly owned. And then obviously you have the issues of oversight where you have to manage the private contractors that are building things. And if they do a shoddy job, there's you know all sorts of ramifications. But it is unlikely with something like the California high-speed rail that the state of California has the best people to build a high-speed rail line. They just don't have them. There's no high-speed rail in California. Or in the states, really. Or in the states, exactly. Well, kind of. But it's not like what they want to do with like France. Like I get right, your point. Yeah. And, and so there's there's no way that they would have an existing staff that is good at what they need to get done. And so you face an initial obstacle before you can even get to starting the project of having to hire the staff and build the organization that is able to do the project. Mm. And mm. that is, I think, unnecessary and often counterproductive. But yeah, mm. I don't know. It, th- th- these are the sorts of things that are complicated because obviously the motivations and the interests are not always what you would want in private organizations. And when you're talking about things that need to be used publicly by a lot of different people, and there are a lot of different interests on them, and they are, in essence, monopolies, right? Like if you're building a metro or you're building a road or a train, those are all monopolies. There's not generally another option that competes comparatively. Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. if you have no public control or public regulation around them, it gives an enormous amount of power to whoever does own it. Yeah, I guess that's sort of an argument for like public ownership, because like, if it is essentially a monopoly, even if not like, sort of a, it's a metaphorical monopoly. No, it's a monopoly. Um, well, I mean, yeah, but like, it's a limited monopoly, but it's a monopoly. Right, right. But I, I guess it would be better for, for it to be like publicly owned, because at least at that point, you could vote the people out of office or there's, I feel like more oversight by the public than if it were just privately owned. But I don't know. I'm down to have that debate. Maybe that should be in. That's definitely own, a different, uh, different conversation. Its yeah. own, yeah, yeah, its own conversation. I got to think more about it. But yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Well, I think we kind of talked about everything we want to talk about. Do you have anything else you wanted to add? No, I think that's pretty much it. Yeah, they're just complicated, man. They are complicated and necessary and messy. That's really what I get and out of it. It's hard this. to talk about them because every one of them is unique. Right. True. And yeah, they do have such widely varying ramifications that it's it's really hard to get a handle on all of them and all of the intricacies. For sure. 
they are important. So I, I definitely advise anybody who is interested in cities and infrastructure, generally speaking, to look into some of the projects and the details around some of them, because it's fascinating to see how procurement processes go, how varied it is. Right, right. And if any of them are up for either a vote or if they're coming up for your city council, like challenge the people who are running it to really justify how it's going to benefit yeah. your city beyond like we're laying 100 miles of track or we're spending less money than this other project down the road. Yeah, That might be true, but does that really matter? And if you have a say or if people are trying to convince you of the benefits of a certain project, I know a lot of people want to see things move forward. Like I know for the California high-speed rail, there was a referendum passed that started the construction of the railway and whatnot. It got public approval. And everybody was just so eager to have some sort of high-speed rail network that they just wanted to pass it. Yep. And just be aware that when you're looking at things like this, while it might be attractive if you're the kind of person that supports those sorts of things and wants to push those sorts of things forward, there is a very significant possibility of major downsides. Like we said, it may not even end up coming through, even though people have tried at great expense. And so be wary, be wary about enormous projects. If there's a billion behind the price tag proposed, mm -hmm. you can be sure mm -hmm. it's going to be astronomically expensive. Mm -hmm. All right. So uh, what's next on our plate, John? Oh, yes. I was, was going to say this at the beginning, and then I didn't. Next episode, in two weeks, we are going to start a kind of series, we think, maybe? Yeah. Which is going to be basically profiling cities, talking about specifically, because each city is unique, the positives, the negatives about a given city, how it came into being, maybe some statistics around the population, population growth, economics, all sorts of stuff. And we're going to start next time with Los Angeles, where I am from, where Ben has spent time. Mm -hmm. And from then on, maybe every other episode, maybe not as often, we're not sure yet, we're going to start profiling some various cities. So if you really want to hear about your city, maybe send in a suggestion. We're going to obviously start with ones that we know better, but... Yeah. Yeah. And I think we're also probably going to focus on big cities at first yeah. and then maybe move on to smaller, mid-sized ones or ones that have really interesting things going mm, on. In definitely. Them. Um, I've heard fun stuff about Rotterdam, which yeah. gets eclipsed by Amsterdam often, but cool you know, that might be fun to look at. Absolutely. Excited about it. So you can send in suggestions or give us any sort of feedback on Twitter at Polis Podcast, and you can find our show notes and links to anything that we mentioned in the episode today at subjectradio.com slash polis slash zero zero nine. And I'll talk to you in two weeks, Ben. Yeah, absolutely, John. Have a good one. Cool. Bye. Right. Now, with that being right. said, so go ahead. No, I, actually, I think I was going to transition the same way that you were going to transition. Go ahead. I don't know what you were going to say. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, with with that being said, I think these large scale things between cities are sometimes necessary. Oh, okay. How are you going to transition? What were you going to go into? <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>